Welcome to Book Wandering with me, Anna James, the podcast where I talk to another writer about their most beloved children's or YA book. I'm the author of the children's fantasy series Pages & Co and an arts journalist, and this week I'm joined by Emily St. John Mandel. Emily is the author of six novels, including mega hit Station Eleven, which Emily also adapted for TV. I met Emily for the first time at a dinner to celebrate Station Eleven back in 2014, and since then have chaired events virtually and in person for her. Emily's book of choice was Susan Cooper's 1970s cult classic, The Dark is Rising, although as you'll hear, it's not one that Emily has actually gone back to since childhood, so our chat is quite free-ranging, covering everything from children's books to how to get divorced on Wikipedia. And before we get into the episode, just to quickly note that while the podcast is largely suitable for children, this isn't geared at younger listeners. So welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for coming uh, and being a guest on Book Wandering. I'm delighted to have you. Well, thank you so much. It's so lovely to chat with you again. It's more fun doing this live, but it's lovely we can do this. It's nice. Yeah. So for yeah. people listening, Emily and I did an event Well, we've done digital events before, but we got to actually do a live event in the summer, last summer, uh, when you were over for Sea of Tranquility coming out here. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was fun. And I'm sure we will uh, get on to your books. Uh, but the book that you've chosen uh, to talk about to start with is The Dark is Rising. So I guess just to kick off, I'd love to hear about why you picked that and how you first encountered it. Um, I don't remember how I first encountered it, but I had the unbelievable good fortune of growing up in a family that valued books. And there there was just a constant stream of books because, you know, you get a library card right. and then you check out the absolute maximum every single week. And that was that was how we rolled. Yep. Um, so at some point I encountered the Darkest Rising series. And it's a funny thing because, I mean, I grew up in Canada. Um, I believe the series is British. I, I know very few people in the United States who've heard of it, which seems unfortunate to me. Oh. But it just had, it, it just stayed with me. You know, I think that for anyone who's unfamiliar with the series, it's this whole kind of grand plot about good and evil and children caught up in the middle of all that. And I think that when you're a kid, there is this level of uncertainty around magic. You know, like, is it possible that there might be an unseen world underneath our mm -hmm. world? And, you know, imagine if I could somehow be part of that. It probably ties into the way that children long for control. You know, when you're a kid, you, and I think about this as a parent all the time, um, when you're a kid, you have so little control over your life. And that is just the nature of being right. a child. And I think the fantasy of discovering one day that you have incredible powers, you know, the way Will in those books can stop time. Um, that's very appealing <laughs> to children. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that's part of why those books stayed with me. In memory, they're beautifully written. I haven't, I haven't returned to them in adulthood. Um, Oh, but yeah, there's so just something something about the drama and the atmosphere. Um, and also, this will not resonate with your listeners, I'd imagine, but the, um, <laughs> the sense of foreignness about them, because they're British. I mean, okay. I was a kid growing up in rural British Columbia, and, and it, it, was, it was always something I really enjoyed, reading books that were mm. set in a country that was quite unfamiliar to me. So that was, yeah, right. they were just... They, they've just stayed with me as just a kind of lovely and memorable reading experience. Mm -hmm. And that, that's interesting because they very much, it very much is a thing here. Right. Uh, right. A book that I think if you are a reader, were a reader as a child, it would be one of the books you would have assumed someone has probably encountered. Yeah. 
and I think to a lesser extent in Canada, but still to some extent, but then right. they seem, and perhaps it's just the crowd I run with, I don't know, but they seem not to have <laughs> quite crossed the American border, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's interesting. And it it's interesting going back. So I read the whole series as a child, but I have only had only the fuzziest of memories, more mm-hmm. of a feel. I think I read them. I must have read them quite young um, to track with that. And that was one. So I, I reread The Dark is Rising. So which is technically the second one, but very much the one I believe so. that I think is the one that people think of. Obviously, it's where the title of the series comes from. Mm-hmm. It can be read as a standalone. I found it a very curious experience reading it back. Um, especially as someone who's now writes books. Um, right. Because it really breaks a lot of rules and it's very well as you mentioned like will it's very chosen one which i am not against in principle at all mm-hmm. um but will is very much a chosen one but where and also a lot of his knowledge is um it's not really earned oh that's interesting he reads a magical book and he just knows how to do everything right which i feel and and that's even the finale when the hunt is summoned will help summon the hunt but he doesn't go on the hunt and he is actually in the field with merriman dealing with hawkin uh-huh. the servant who uh well the hunt actually just off page goes and like deals with the dark and so i found it a really curious one to read back because it doesn't do what you, you're sort of you feel like it's supposed to do and yet it works right anyway right that's so interesting yeah i wonder what it would be like for me to reread it now that i write books too <laughs> it's one of those books that i think i'm afraid that there'll be something bad in it which i know is a simplistic way of looking at literature but you know the way you return to the novels that you loved as a child and realize wow this is really racist or sexist like whatever you know the thing is and yeah. that that makes me hesitate to go back to any book i loved in childhood <laughs> for being honest here that is extremely uh, legitimate uh, <laughs> i actually was just recording an episode with gabrielle zevin who chose a little princess and mm-hmm. we both reread that and it has you know a lot of like a lot of books at that time there's a lot of colonialism to tangle through um mm-hmm. and also just the things that i went into that reread knowing that was going to be there but it's also really fat phobic in a way that i wasn't prepared <laughs> to right. encounter right yeah and you never yeah. quite know what you're going to get when you come back to these books and i think it's a really valid thing to want to also preserve a reading experience you have as a child it's a different thing to how we read books as adults absolutely yeah so how old were you ish when you read the books um somewhere in probably the 11 to 12 mm-hmm. range okay i'm kind of guessing i don't really remember but that, that <laughs> rings true to me can you remember what other books were speaking to you at that similar time were you a big reader of fantasy generally as a child I was I was yeah um yeah I was obsessed with the Lord of the Rings Uh, um and uh I love the Chronicles of Narnia mm -hmm. I don't I don't know how many times I read them through but several um I got into the Robert Jordan series when I was a little bit 
older, uh, The Wheel of Time. Oh, um, yeah. That series really stalled out. You know, at a certain point, I remember reading book four or five, and I was like, wait, these characters have spent the entire book waiting for something to happen. And I just mm-hmm. like, the plot wasn't moving. So <laughs> I, I gave up on those, but I did love them at the beginning. Um, and then as I got a bit older, I began to switch more into the sci-fi area. Right. I read a lot of Isaac Asimov as okay. a teenager. So, you know, I just have these kind of half-formed memories of mm-hmm. androids and space stations. Um, <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> yeah. I think part of the pleasure of actually going back to this book was um, the books, the other fantasy books that it's clearly in dialogue with that I am sure mm-hmm. went over my head. For You know, the, the Dark Rider, the Black Rider is quite explicitly Tolkien-y. Um, actually, do you know, side, side note, my Tolkien, I was a fairly hardcore Tolkien girl as a teenager. Okay, okay. <laughs> and I love that. Lego just announced this absurd, it's like $400, 6,000-piece Rivendell kit. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't have anywhere to put it, and I don't have time to do it, but this, my teenage self wants it so very, very Absolutely. badly. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be so fun. And, yeah, and then you get to the storage issue. Yeah. <laughs> what do like, I do with this massive thing? Yeah. Like a huge Lego Rivendell. Yeah. I don't think I can just... Mm-hmm. It, but maybe one day yeah yeah <laughs> and we've obviously we've when we've talked before we've talked about genre but I, I mm-hmm. it's a subject I'm endlessly fascinated by and you said that obviously you uh got into sci-fi and your books uh people are always wanting to put them into genre categories and mm-hmm. they flirt with yeah. genre in a way that literary fiction doesn't always do is that very has that been a was that a very organic thing for you to be playing in genre from the start or did it feel like a conscious decision when you started writing um, it was very organic you know it, it's funny my very first novel last night in montreal which i published in 2009 it was a while ago um, that was a book that crossed genres in a way that I didn't even really think through because, you know, I was going to say when you're writing a book, you don't think about how that'll be marketed, but I don't know if that's true anymore. Anyways, I didn't think about how it would be marketed. <laughs> so, um, I wrote what I thought of as literary fiction, but then it was rejected by a lot of publishers. And one of the most common rejection notes was we like this a lot, but we don't know how we would market it. Mm-hmm. It's in more than one genre. And that was when I realized that if you write literary fiction with a detective in it, you've written detective fiction. <laughs> so that was that was a very early introduction to um, yeah to that idea of books being siloed off by genre. Um, it, it, it's it's interesting. I, I guess when I look back to how I was thinking about books when I first started writing them, I had this idea. Well, let me backtrack a little bit further. Something I'd noticed as a writer was that it seemed to me that very often books would be beautifully written, but not much would happen. <laughs> you know, the sort of like pretentious literary fiction cliche in the United States is, you know, 400 pages about a divorce in Connecticut. Yeah. You know, just like <laughs> substitute in any um, upper middle class British suburb. Like you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, so, you know, either they'd be beautifully written, but not much would happen. Just like a series of gorgeously rendered emotional shifts over several hundred pages. <laughs> or they would be, let's say, competently written, but the plot just flies. You know, they're, they're called page turners for a reason right. where 
you know, between the exploding cars and, you know, the high stakes speed chases down the expressway and murders and whatever else, you know, you just can't stop reading. And I had this philosophical idea that I wanted both, that what I wanted was to write beautifully rendered literary fiction, but with the strongest possible narrative drive. Mm -hmm. And what I realized really quickly is that that narrative drive element, that emphasis on plot is what pushes a person very easily into genre. Um, and you know, it, it's something I've dealt with my whole career. My, my first three novels were kind of on the noir side. Mm-hmm. You know, there were detectives and car chases. <laughs> um, and then uh, Station Eleven was set, you know, it's, it, it, it's spoken about as a post-apocalyptic novel, which makes sense. But I think only about 60% of it is actually <laughs> set in the post-apocalypse, you know. And then, um, yeah, and then... The Glass Hotel was a ghost story in many ways, and Sea of Tranquility is set partly on the moon. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, I, I, I have always leaned pretty hard into genre. It, it's interesting to realize how polarizing that idea of genre can be, where, you know, an experience I've had really quite a few times, particularly with Station Eleven, is that somebody will come up to me and they'll say, you know, I've heard this book is good, but I don't really read sci-fi. So no offense. It's just not for me. (laughs) And then somebody else will say, I've heard this book is good, but you know, it's literary fiction and I only read sci-fi. So like, (laughs) no offense. (laughs) I'm just like, guys, it's the same book. Um, You know, I, I think that we do have a tendency, not just with literature, but with everything to lean into really rigid categorizations. Mm -hmm. You know, we like to categorize things. It's black or white, one or zero. You know, we we think in very binary terms. Mm -hmm. An idea that I personally really like with regard to genre is that a book can be more than one, which sounds obvious, but isn't always. But, you know, I find that to be a kind of expansive way of looking at it, Mm -hmm. that a book like Sea of Tranquility, you know, that's literary fiction. It's also sci-fi. It's also a detective story. I'm sure I could come up with a few other <laughs> labels in there. But that's an idea that I love. That you know, perhaps we could move away over time from thinking of genre as being a, a mutually exclusive arrangement. Right. Uh, so much of that is probably, like you say, there's a human nature to want to categorize things. But I suppose there's also the capitalist requirement of selling things and where do you put things on bookshelves right <laughs> which yeah exactly where does it go in the bookstore <laughs> right yeah uh, and you know obviously we want people to find and read our books uh, but it's 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 an interesting one um I think the way that people perceive books is has been interesting to me as someone who writes for children mm-hmm. uh and the way that people well, all of this is couched as it's quite remarkable what people will um how frank people will be about telling you why they don't want to read your book. <laughs> Which, I can uh, tell the word Frank is doing some heavy lifting in that yeah. sentence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um and actually part of the reason I wanted to, you know, do the podcast is I think it's interesting thinking about how we talk about children's books, but a lot of it actually really does apply to genre as well in the terms of the way they get put in a in a bucket and mm-hmm. treated as kind of a bonus to the cultural conversation um, as opposed to integral to the cultural conversation. And often when you ask people what their favorite book is, a lot of the time people say a children's book without right. ever thinking, and it's a very formative one. And yet I'm still asked all the time when I'm going to write 
a real book <laughs> and it's like well what's your favorite book and it, yeah it's uh but I mean I, it's like you try writing a children's book yeah and I don't think it's it's not yeah it's just it's just different it's harder in some ways mm -hmm. and easier in some ways just like any other type of writing yeah. has its challenges and its Absolutely. joys um I am curious if you would ever be tempted to write for children um you know it's not a genre that speaks to me mm -hmm. as a writer um but, you know, one of the great pleasures of having a child mm. is reading books with her. And so it's something where, as a reader, I love children's books. Mm -hmm. You know, when I encounter a book that I enjoy reading, that's um, at bedtime, like that is a gift. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are so many terrible children's books out there. And yeah, just uh, encountering one that's good. It's just the most wonderful thing. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I would write one in the near future just because I'm, um, I do find myself as a writer more drawn toward adult fiction, sure. but it's a genre I love. Yeah. And saying you haven't gone back to the darkest rising yet, of course, I suppose you may end up, uh, going back to it. Maybe. I don't know. But like, what if it's, what if it's insanely problematic? It's just, <laughs> I think, you know, which just... that, can, that can have value too. You know, like I've had, um, you know, I've definitely had the experience of reading a book to my daughter and having to stop and be like, um, you know, just to frame this for you. Mm -hmm. Like back then, expectations of women and girls were very different. And now, of course, you don't have to get married. <laughs> it's like you can do anything. And, you know, just like, hey, we're in a new world. Let's just point that out. Um, and she's good at picking up on that at this mm -hmm. point. But yeah, I, I do. I, I do feel a little apprehensive about going back to older children's fiction. Yeah. I would say, having just reread it, mm -hmm. I think you're you're okay with the darkest rising. You would. You think okay. I'm okay? Okay. Yes. It, okay. It, good. It has good. elements that are of its time, but nothing in a. I I don't think anything in a distressing way. I can't vouch for the okay. rest of the good. series. Um. Right. Right. Well, that's good to know. It is. Um. I would say Will's sisters are uh, get a little short shrift. Um. In mm -hmm. but but not in a distressing way. Uh. In a just a slightly seventies okay. in a slightly seventies okay. way perhaps. Right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and the other thing about the series is oh, it's obviously a series, but a lot of the um a lot of them work in quite a distinct way. And I was mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting just thinking about your books that exist in a bit of a metaverse, Mandelverse, if that's not too they desperately yeah. cringeworthy to frame it like that. You must be used to people using <laughs> that off like using saying that. It's funny. Um I, I did an interview with Esquire where she used the phrase the Emily St. John Mandel cinematic universe, right. which is a little bit of a mouthful, <laughs> but um, I appreciated that. It was, it was lovely to see that in print. <laughs> is that something you will continue playing with? And I guess what is the, wh why is that fun for you or creatively satisfying for you to have, um, have those interplaying novels and characters? It is something I'll keep playing with. A writer who's had tremendous influence on me, which I think will be obvious to anybody who read my most recent book, is David Mitchell. Right. And I love the way that he returns to characters across time and different projects and different works. There is just something really satisfying about creating connections between my books. Maybe it's some kind of a secret longing for order in the universe. You know, <laughs> can, I, can I create kind of a pattern here? Um, it is very important to me that every book stand completely alone. Right. But it's, uh, yeah, I like that feeling of creating connections 
also sometimes I just fall in love with individual characters, which is why Miranda and Leon are in the Glass Hotel after Station Eleven. And why Vincent and Morella are in Sea of Tranquility after the Glass Hotel. Mm -hmm. You know, you create a character and that takes a lot. It takes a lot of effort and time. And sometimes I just find I want to see more of their lives Mm -hmm. or perhaps just a different aspect of their lives. Mm -hmm. And pulling them into a different book can be kind of an interesting exercise in that. Yeah. Do, do Do you think you'd ever be tempted to do more of a straightforward series? Or... Um, good question. I mean, I wouldn't rule it out. Like, that could be cool. Yeah, like, you could definitely... There's definitely an opportunity there to really build on a narrative. Like, that's that's an incredible scope, isn't it? You know, to imagine doing multiple books with the same storyline. At the same time, there is something appealing to me about that kind of... Um, that kind of balancing act, I suppose, with a novel where you do have a tremendous amount of space, so to speak. You know, you you can easily get to about 350 pages before readers start to get a little twitchy. Um, <laughs> so there is a lot of space, but it's not infinite. You know, you do have to find a way to kind of pull everything together. And I do kind of like the discipline in that. Right. So, I, yeah, I, I would say that I'm more drawn towards standalone novels that maybe fit together in a less obvious way, mm-hmm. in terms of overlapping characters or overlapping themes. Is it because you mentioned Narnia as well, which actually I would say it's probably one that I would not recommend going back to if you have precious memories of it. Yeah, yeah, I did go back to it. It okay. was uh, questionable in places. Yeah. It has <laughs> yeah. some beautiful storytelling moments. but um, It does, yeah. A lot of it's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, the religious stuff is more obvious than I thought it was going to be and I was expecting it to be yeah same there <laughs> when Aslan turns into a lamb at the end and you're yeah. just like that's heavy-handed I'm sorry <laughs> yeah yeah it's way more literal um but one thing I loved about Narnia as a child and is the way because it, it does do that it's a series but it it's sort of in between kind of what you do with kind of overlapping characters in mm-hmm. a, a very linear series and I really viscerally remember the experience of reading The Magician's Nephew as a child. And I mm-hmm. read it last and oh, wow. seeing how it all came together at the end. It's like a really core, like storytelling moment for me. The idea that you could pull it all together like that. And this is where the the wardrobe came from. And, you know, Susan Cooper in The Darkest Rising does that a little bit. And I, um, Earthsea is one of my favorites. And again, she does that dipping into a world a lot and I think that's something I mm-hmm. haven't seen as much in children's fantasy at the moment but it seems such a source of storytelling joy which I guess is what you're talking about yeah. with the with your the way that you kind of have your characters and stories yeah absolutely um because I mean we all know that writing a book is hard <laughs> just as an endeavor it's just not easy to do that well um if you can make it fun like that's that's something lovely isn't yeah. it um yeah, and, and like, honestly, that's a big part of it for me. It is just really fun to find opportunities to pull the books together. Mm-hmm. Just that moment of, oh, wait, what if I brought in that character and he was doing this? Or what if the obscure electronica band that <laughs> showed up in the Lola Quartet, what if that were central to the Glass Hotel you know, two books later? That's yeah. just, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> yeah. And another thing with this, the Sea of Tranquility obviously has a, an, an awareness of 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 story and mm-hmm. you know the 
Dark is Rising is very much a book about the power of stories. And again, I guess with all of this stuff, I'm so interested in how much you just organically come to these things. And if the books that you loved and your writing is sort of rooted in and even in a vague way, uh, it comes to that organically because it's enjoyable. How much do you did you consciously want to kind of play with those more meta elements? I mean, The Darkest Rising isn't meta in any way, but it's that stories about stories. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something I think about a lot because there's definitely a risk of getting too meta. You know, that way that novelists, as they move forward in their careers, can kind of start to eat their own tails, yeah. so to speak, so that all of a sudden they've written a novel about a novelist writing a novel. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's, that seems like an ever-narrowing range of experience <laughs> that keeps being depicted here. Um, you know, and I did get into that in Sea of Tranquility. I made it sci-fi, which was maybe a little bit of hedge against that. Um, but that also came out of a very specific, strange experience, which was when the, uh, when the COVID-19 pandemic broke out. Um, and just the strangeness of having written Station Eleven, where, you know, I was in New York City for the duration. And that incredibly intense period in the spring of 2020, which is constant ambulance sirens and a lot of horror, mm -hmm. just kind of generally in the atmosphere around us. And then around that time, I was getting a lot of invitations to write essays and op-eds about being the author of Station right. Eleven, which <laughs> was a little gross. Like I wasn't, I wasn't going to use the pandemic as a marketing opportunity, yeah. <laughs> but it was kind of a strange, specific experience to have written this pandemic novel and then, um, and then find myself in an actual pandemic, the thing where you research and imagine what a thing would be. And then it's like, oh, and here's the thing. Um, so I did, I did find I wanted to write about that. And it seemed to me that kind of an interesting way to approach that maybe would be to filter it through science fiction. So yeah, I do have this very strange section, two sections in Sea of Tranquility that are sci-fi autofiction mm -hmm. about an <laughs> author of a pandemic novel, you know, navigating a pandemic. And as you say, autofiction, you presumably have a lot of people taking those extremely literally uh, did you have any words you know <laughs> references do. to publicists and uh, other guests mm -hmm. and the uh joys and challenges of being on tour um because you obviously mm -hmm. are, are very happy to say it's autofiction but it is you know autofiction it's also yeah 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 it's funny um it's, it was an interesting exercise and also kind of valuable to me as a reader just to see how much of a life is not in autofiction? Um, you know, there are aspects of that character, Olive's experience, that are completely fictional. Um, you know, sometimes quite obviously so, as in when she goes home from her book tour, she's returning home to a moon colony. Oh, which, uh, right. I, don't I don't live on the moon, just to clarify. Um, There's a scoop for you all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. A scoop for readers. I'm in colony too. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but then other aspects of her personal life um, are quite different from mine. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, a lot of it is completely autobiographical. The, um, all of the interactions that she has on the road happen to me. Right. So all those insane things that people will say to me like, were actually, yeah, uh, they made it into the book, which was kind of satisfying in a petty way, I have to say. I bet. Yeah, so it's a very strange mix of fictional and not. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I think speaking of hopefully this is okay to ask about because uh, you talked mm. about your interview but you had a brief uh, delightful moment on the internet where uh, you tweeted <laughs> did I got in a fight with Wikipedia that was yeah. really funny <laughs> uh, and were well, could you tell us? I thought it was again. It's. I was almost sad that you'd already written Sea of Tranquility because I feel like it would have made it a delightful. Addition <laughs> you were like, to this Olive. would be autofiction. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, Wikipedia pages. I, I'd say I think you could reasonably say they vary in terms of accuracy. <laughs> yeah. um, and mine was a little bit of a time capsule. Right. Uh, I was married for some time, and then the marriage ended in April. Uh, was finalized. The divorce was finalized in November. And then um, I can't remember when the Wikipedia thing was a month or two later. Um, I realized like that my ex-husband was still showing up as a spouse on my Wikipedia page, which um, I didn't love that that was inaccurate. It was also, it seemed to me a little awkward for my ex-girlfriend, you know, if any, for my girlfriend, I'm sorry, that, you know, if anybody were to look me up, uh, <laughs> They would think she was dating a married woman, which right. is kind of weird. <laughs> so, yeah, so I was trying to get it changed. Um, a Wikipedia editor told me that I um, that I needed to have an interview where I talked about <laughs> being divorced, which just sounded miserable. Like, who wants to do that? Um, and also, it was months until the paperback publication of Sea of Tranquility. Right. So I thought, okay, can I just solve this problem on Twitter? <laughs> so I went on Twitter and... Um, I thought, well, I am followed by a lot of journalists. So I tweeted something to the effect of, now, friends, did you know that if you have a Wikipedia page and you get a divorce, um, you need a citation uh, to get that corrected? So, you know, I said, all I want for Christmas in summary is for journalists to do an interview and just ask if I'm divorced. And so I got results within about two hours. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I got this, I got an email from uh, this guy at Slade. Um, the subject header was, I would totally interview you. And yeah, he asked a series of questions, including, so are you still married? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was kind of amazing to get to clear that up so quickly. Yes. But it did start this kind of strange thing behind the scenes where um, for the next, I want to say the next month or so, my Wikipedia page was in constant movement. Oh. It was getting changed several times a day. So it was kind of interesting. People would take my ex-husband's name out of that biographical box on the top. And then within a couple of hours, somebody else would put it back in and somebody else would take it out and somebody else. <laughs> put it back in. The personal life section just kept on getting um, rewritten over and over and over again. And it was just really, really strange that there were people seemingly quite invested in keeping my Wikipedia page the way it had been. Um, I don't know what that was about, but it was kind of interesting to just watch the way it shifted constantly. Um, I think where it finally settled is my ex-husband's name is still there, but it does say I'm divorced from him. Like, you know, that's progress. So it's at least accurate. At least it's, it's at least accurate. Yeah. At least if my girlfriend's friends look me up, I, it doesn't say that I'm married to a completely different person. Right. Uh, yes. No, I mean, yeah. I have not yet had to grapple with the... Uh... A personalized section of a Wikipedia article, but as a divorced person, have uh, I feel mm -hmm. <laughs> the you know the need for accuracy? Uh, is, yeah, yeah. It's it's good to have these things. It's good to have these things cleared up. Uh, Although, absolutely, it is funny, isn't it? Like personal life sections of Wikipedia's, it's it's not something you think you're going to have to grapple with, presumably, when one starts writing a novel. <laughs> 
Right, right. You don't expect it when you start. And also like, I didn't expect to care as much as I did. Right. But, but I found I did care that that representation of my life was an echo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. it matters. It's funny, isn't it? It's sort of simultaneously, like you say, like who cares, but it does, it, like it matters and it doesn't matter all kind of simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, right. Yeah, that's well put. <laughs> do, have you, Yeah. <laughs> do you feel in a general sense, because obviously being an author, especially one who sold a lot of books, it, you, the way mm-hmm. that you are asked to be and share what you're, you feel comfortable sharing, has that, is that something you feel comfortable with generally? Has that shifted? Has it become just a, a requirement that you feel you sort of have to make peace with? Or is it something that, how, how has that relationship that shifted as you have, I suppose, become right. more and more in the public eye? It hasn't, like, I've definitely had moments where that's felt uncomfortable, where at this point, I'm very comfortable with saying no to requests right. that I don't <laughs> want to do. Um, but, you know, that's not the case when you're starting out. And I do remember feeling a lot of pressure, which I think, I hate to say, might be somewhat specific to female writers uh, to churn out personal essays. Right. And it makes me feel a little bit hypocritical to say that I don't really write personal essays because I do often enjoy reading them. Right. You know, they're often really interesting, these glimpses into other people's lives. But I always struggled with that kind of a loss of privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like I keep a journal and nobody else reads it. And that's kind of the, what, what I'm comfortable with in terms of writing about my life. Um, at this point, nobody's asked me for a personal essay in a very long time. Okay. Because I think <laughs> yeah. that. I think my publicists know that I'll say no to them. I've, yeah. I've turned down a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was one very specific thing that that I did have to grapple with at a certain point mm-hmm. of, you know what? I feel miserably overexposed if I partake in this form. I'm just not going to do this anymore. Yeah. And that can feel a bit scary because it is so hard to find attention for your books when you're just starting out. And you think, well, but what if this is the thing that gets me a few more readers? Well, yes. maybe it's not worth it, you know, if it makes you that unhappy. Well, quite. In terms of the rest of it, this is uh, this is probably not very flattering to me, but I've done so many interviews <laughs> that if somebody asks me an uncomfortable question, I can just pivot to the answer to the question I wish they'd ask. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you also just develop these kind of deflective skills over time mm-hmm. if you want to be fairly private. Um, yeah, you know, there, there are things in my life that I'm open about, but probably not much. I mean... I don't think that very many people outside of my friend group really actually know that much about my personal life. And I do kind of like it that way. I yeah. To say. Yeah. Yeah. And just can have Olive, uh, who can be the... Uh... Right, exactly. Yeah, we can talk about Olive's life mm-hmm. on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And go, I guess going back to sort of The Darkest Rising generally, but just sort of the books that kind of make us specifically... Um, I'm interested in the books that you feel like you are in conversation with. If you feel like there are books that you are explicitly in conversation with, you mentioned Asimov and I, I quite enjoy being able to see the books that I feel like, and not in a derivative mm-hmm. way, very much like uh, we're all riffing on the books that we've read and have made us up either consciously or sub- subconsciously are the books that you would say, I, I am specifically in conversation with this book when I write. I'd say the the most obvious or the one that comes uh most readily to mind for me is The Road by Cormac McCarthy which you know I I truly loved that book and I have a lot of admiration for it 
I wouldn't read it again because you don't need to have that experience <laughs> twice. But, um, but I, I kind of saw Station Eleven as being in conversation with that book in perhaps kind of a negative way, which is maybe a strange thing to say about a book that I did truly love and admire. But I was very conscious in writing Station Eleven of writing a kind of anti-road in that that book is fairly devoid of hope right up until probably the last paragraph, which, you know, is only ambiguously hopeful, I would say. (laughs) Um, Station Eleven was a post-apocalyptic novel that is profoundly hopeful. I just took a completely different track. Um, In terms of other books, yeah, you know what? I'll have to think about it. But that is one that springs most readily to mind. Um, Although I guess you could make an argument in Sea of Tranquility for those autofiction sections about the writer on tour as being perhaps a little bit in conversation with Rachel Cust, oh, which right. you know, I admire greatly. Yeah. 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 I, I really, I really love her work. Mm-hmm. And so with The Dark is Rising, I guess I'm interested in the way that you feel about it. If it's a book, it's a book that you haven't revisited recently mm-hmm. and how you feel about it and why I guess why when I asked you to pick a book why it was why it was that book over other books that you maybe have revisited more recently is it something yeah what what is it do you think that's lingered with you even as a book that you haven't gone back to again and again it's something about a sense of atmosphere Mm. that just stays with me um and I realize that's quite vague but it's um you know, it's like that cliched saying that people will forget everything about you, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Yeah. And there's something in that that applies to books, mm-hmm. I think, perhaps especially books that you read at a formative point in your childhood, where I remember how those books made me feel, just a kind of sense of wonder and just being caught up in the mystery and the drama mm-hmm. of them was, was a wonderful feeling. So yeah, when I got that prompt, those were the first yeah. books that I thought of. And also that it's genuinely scary in a way that I think yeah. is quite rare for children's fiction and even fantasy. And it's about fear. It's even about fear, like towards the start when everything starts, when the snow starts piling down, it's got this really mm-hmm. like visceral description of fear that is really sticks with you. And like you say, it's that I couldn't remember. I could remember hardly anything about the plot, but what I could remember was mm-hmm this sort of snowy mystical feeling from having read the book yeah that all that was all that really lingered for me yeah I retain this kind of reading memory of people lost in a snowstorm at the kind of Welsh mountain or Mm -hmm. something and I I don't I'll I'll mess up all these details because I was literally 10 when I read these but but yeah yeah you're right um and maybe that's also partly why the book spoke to me I think it was Neil Gaiman who said something interesting once about in, in favor of letting children be exposed to horror. Mm. And I don't know if I would go quite that far. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really comfortable letting my daughter, you know, read incredibly scary right. books. <laughs> but kids are scared. You know, it's a terrifying world. And when you're a child, you know that you're small and you do feel powerless. Mm-hmm. There's not enough control. And yeah, perhaps there's an argument to be made for, you know, exploring those feelings in books. And, um, yeah, I, I think, I think that might've been true for me around the time that I, that I read those stories. Mm. And just going back to what you said at the start, so that, the age, that kind of, what, eight to 12 age. And I certainly find this when I'm 
it's my memory of being that age, but also when I, that's the age of my readers. It is such a interesting and lovely age for a relationship with magic and whether that is a real mm-hmm. thing still. Um, right. And you, I get readers who they don't believe in magic, but they do just sort of say to me, like the magic in my books is called book wandering. And they, they do say just, oh, but just by the way, like how, how would I know if I was a book wanderer? And this is after they've told me. I love that. That they don't, right. they know it's a book, but just in case, mm-hmm. how would I know? And I think that that's, it's a very specific time that you don't really ever experience believing and not believing in magic simultaneously like you do when you're sort of 10, 11, which is kind of what The Dark is Rising is sort of about yeah. as well. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I love that instinct. Um, my daughter's a bit younger. She's seven. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she said, she said to me once, are unicorns and fairies real, mm-hmm. but just super, super rare? So not very many people have seen them. And it was so hopeful. It was just like, could this please possibly be true? Even though I kind of know it isn't. <laughs> right. It's that dawning reality that they know they're starting to get that rational understanding that it's not real, but they are yeah. clinging on to the hope that maybe, maybe there is. Yeah, possibly. It exists in some way. Although I'm curious as to how do you, how do you respond to questions like, that when your daughter asks you things like that um you know you I don't want to lie to her like she's she's one of these you know I, I never pretended I never pretended there was a Santa Claus which I recognize right. as a slightly extremist um <laughs> stance but I, I I remember how much I resented my own parents when I found out Santa Claus right. was real and okay. then those years after when you're like I'm sorry are you still trying to convince me there's a Santa <laughs> Claus which I remember finding that really offensive um so I thought I'll just skip all that um <laughs> So, you know, I do try to be kind of straightforward with her about these things. I don't remember exactly what I said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, I, I think fairies and unicorns are unfortunately not real. Right. It's, it's fun to imagine them, though, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, I, I don't have my own children to contend this with, but when kids ask me if book wandering is real, I always have a bit, I've got, I have an answer now, but mm-hmm. initially I just was a bit frozen because like you say, I, I, I don't want to like, I don't want to say. I don't want to say yes because it's it's not, but also I don't want to say no <laughs> when they're still yeah in there. yeah when they're staring up at you with those big eyes like please don't crush my dreams yeah <laughs> and also part of the reason they've responded to the books is because they kind of hope the magic in it is is real uh, and it's a precious aid and a precious kind of question that you have to mm-hmm. take good care of. Um, what other books that your daughter has been particularly enjoying? You were saying that you sort of read some, and obviously, <laughs> as with all genres, there is some bad stuff, but there is some good stuff. Yeah. Is what well, I'm curious. Uh, what are there any that have really kind of you've seen that kind of reader magic alight in her when she's encountered something? Yeah, definitely. Um, we did read the Chronicles of Narnia through right three okay. or four times. Um, oh wow! Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was pretty dedicated. Um, yeah, so that was the major one. Um, these days, she's obsessed with a series of graphic novels about a girl named Phoebe who has a friend who's a unicorn. Okay. <laughs> I think they're called Phoebe and her unicorn. <laughs> so she's she's really into those. Um, yeah, I can't remember what the series was she was obsessed with right before that, but. Yeah, she just kind of cycles in and out of these passions. Um, fairies and unicorns are a major focus okay. these days. Yeah, I find it yeah. really interesting. It's it's interesting seeing what people respond to and children respond to and how things like Narnia 
you know, however much you read, there is there is that kernel of magic in them that captivates children of every generation. Yeah. Despite to an adult size how <laughs> ridiculous at times <laughs> they know, are. I know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um awesome. Yeah. Um well thank you. Yeah. Um I uh it's if been you such a pleasure. If you ever do revisit it or your daughter picks it up and you end up reading it with her um you must report back on uh how you find it uh as an adult okay I think sure. you would be safe I think it's not one you need to worry about problem anything problematic in but it is a curious one in okay how yeah how many rules it breaks or just is an uninterest it's not even right. breaking it just seems really uninterested in doing what the sort of rules are uh but it's still right. utterly right. mystical and magical in a way that's well a testament i suppose to how what a good writer i think if i <laughs> so if i had just a really book good in, books yeah if i handed a book in that just had a character that just learned all the magic by just sitting down and reading a book and then they knew everything i mm -hmm. know with 100 percent certainty that i would not manage to have written something that still was a really good story like susan cooper has <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thank you. It's lovely to see you. Thanks so much for listening to Book Wandering. You can find out more information about Emily and her books and what we talked about below. And you can buy any or all of the books we chatted about via my bookshop.org page. If you enjoyed the episode, I would really appreciate you spreading the word, sharing it online, telling your friends or leaving a review. You can find me at Acacia Books on social media or you can email me at AnnaJamesAuthor at gmail.com podcast is produced by Adam Collier with artwork by Hester Kitchen and next week I'll be chatting to Juno Dawson about the point horror book The Forbidden Game so do come back then and listen and until then happy book wandering.